Hi, and welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. I'm Amanda Nystrom, the Chief Operating Officer at Command Prompt, a leader in open source excellence since 1997. We hope that you enjoy the podcast today and contact us for your Postgres and full stack needs, including 24-7 support. Find us at 503-667-4564 at commandprompt.com or at sales at commandprompt.com. Enjoy. More Than a Refresh is brought to you by Greenplum Database. Greenplum is a PostgreSQL-based, open-source, massively parallel database for analytics, machine learning, and AI. A VMware technology, Greenplum is a modern database that isn't limited by your data size or vertical scaling limitations. For more information or to get in touch, visit greenplum.org. Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today is Ned Lilly, President and CEO of Xtuple, an ERP software that backs to the legendary PostgreSQL database. Our theme today is ERPs and entrepreneurship. Now, Ned, before I have you introduce yourself and tell us a little about you, I have a question. Far away. It is the end of the world. We're talking walking dead. Okay. <laughs> Zombies everywhere. You have the option of staying in town or going to an island that completely will sustain you. You can bring nobody, no pets. It's just you. You're it. You are the last man standing. What three items do you bring to the island? <laughs> That's assuming I choose to, to go to the island, right? Well, you're the last best man standing. Somehow I feel the self-preservation. You'll go for the island. <laughs> What three items? Um, well, gosh. Well, Ned, it looks like you're dead. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't take too long. <laughs> so, for for our listeners, my three items are very simple. It would be a fire starter, a knife, and a cup. The reason is is that once you get a fire started, if you maintain it, you very rarely use the fire starter, and it's a whole heck of a lot easier than a bow drill. The knife, you can hunt, you can fish, you can create shelter, you can chop wood, and a cup so you can boil water because you never want to drink water from the wild without boiling it first. That's outstanding. You're, 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 you're basically John Locke from Lost. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I, I did, uh, I spend quite a bit of time outdoors. Um, so why don't you introduce yourself a little bit outside of your title here to tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, name's Ned Lilly. I uh, live in Virginia. I went to uh, undergrad at the University of Virginia, was an American government major. I uh, have a master's in something called political management, of all things, um, and had a brief first career doing that kind of stuff in uh, and around the nation's capital and kind of lost my taste for it pretty quickly. Um, got interested in uh, technology in the early kind of pre-internet days of dial-up, CompuServe, and America Online, and, and Prodigy even, uh, and uh, was just really, really interested in how people were using technology to sort of, sort of better their own lives and kind of 
how they were doing a better job of that than the people that I was trying to get elected into government. <laughs> so those, those two lines kind of crossed on the graph for me and I just got more and more interested in technology and uh, uh, ended up uh, working for a company that uh, was a media company that had sort of periodic fits of entrepreneurial activity over the years, uh, starting up things um, and doing kind of corporate venture type investing and uh, ended up sort of almost by default being the, the go-to technology guy on the corporate staff for that sort of thing. Um, so that's how I kind of got to where, where I was. And then several years later, I decided I wanted to start my own company and, and that's the company that became Xtuple. Political management. So I'm, I it just sounds dirty, doesn't it? Yeah, I was, well, actually, that leads to my question was how many showers a day did you have to take <laughs> to actually get through a week being in political management? It was it was an interesting time. I, I, I sort of split my time. Um, there was a now this this as here's more technology stuff in the early days of, uh, again, sort of pre-internet. Uh, there was a business called the hotline, which is now owned by national journal. Um, and it was basically a, a kind of a cross between a clipping service and a digest of all of the political news around the country. And we had a bank of modems stacked up on top of each other, probably I don't know, a couple dozen anyway. Um, and all the political reporters from all around the country would either, uh, like send us their stories plain text, you know, 80 columns directly over the modem, or sometimes they'd fax them. And we would assemble it all into this sort of digest um, overnight and, and, you know, send it out over those modems uh, directly to each individual subscriber, uh, you know, the next morning at, you know, 8 a.m. So it was a, a great job for uh, 20-somethings that didn't need to sleep much. But that, I tell, I tell you what. That's fascinating because, you know, I remember you and I came up around the same time and I remember, you know, you mentioned CompuServe, which would be, you know, the, the equivalent today without the access would be say LinkedIn hmm. and Prodigy and AOL were kind of the same thing. And then you had, you know, the, the Linux of the online services, which was the one that I used was Delphi. I remember Delphi. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I actually founded uh, the largest still operating private ISP in Portland, Oregon, not, not the company, but the, that segment of their business. And they're still operating today. Wow. And I, I was selling that started as they brought me in as a bench tech. And, you know, for those that don't know, there was a time when computer makers didn't think about the idea that you could put a CPU in the wrong way. So the CPUs would be symmetrical. And if you didn't know how to put them in, you could put them in sideways, turn on the computer and blow up the CPU. Um, that's how I learned which direction to put the CPUs in. Um, but I was selling, you know, 486 DX266s with 16 meg of RAM and a one gig uh, SD or SCSI drive, depending on the buyer for five grand a pop. Oh yeah. Before the Pentium revolution. Before the Pentium resolution, back, back when Cyrix was a thing. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's been a long time. 
Uh, so you, you founded Xtuple, but you had a life kind of briefly between being what most people don't like to talk about, but love to talk about, which is politics and uh, Xtuple. And that was great bridge. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the, the media company I mentioned, um, uh, you know, kind of medium size uh, family business called Landmark Communications based in Virginia. And, you know, as I referenced these spasms of entrepreneurial activity, they had done things like started the Weather Channel cable network from scratch, um, the Auto Trader uh, classified magazines, uh, autotrader.com and all was something they jointly started with, uh, with uh, Cox Enterprises out of Atlanta. So, you know, an interesting company for someone that had was basically a newspaper and TV station uh, company. But they had this sort of venture group that I was in that did, did these interesting things from time to time. And uh, one of the things they did was an ISP, actually. They, uh, they started up, uh, they bought a small company um, that basically provided dial-up internet to their, the, com the communities they serviced uh, with their newspapers. And then they brought Gannett and Knight Ritter into it. And it became a decent-sized national ISP for a little while. And lo and behold, they without knowing it, uh, were the, one of the largest users of Red Hat Linux back in the day. This is sort of early, mid-90s. And uh, so when uh, Bob Young was uh, running around looking for investors in the early early days of, of Red Hat, uh, he came to, to Norfolk, Virginia and uh, talked to Landmark. And they kind of, fair to say they didn't get the idea of open source um, and the, it was actually, a, it's a family business. The father, um, was running the company at the time. The, the, the son, um, was actually running the, the ventures group at the time. And so when the company passed on it, uh, he kind of raised his hand and said, anybody mind if I, you know, put a couple million of my own, uh, into this, this red hat thing. And everyone sort of laughed and said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. So that guy, uh, Frank Batten Jr., ended up becoming the largest single shareholder in Red Hat and turned a couple of million into a couple of billion. Um, and, you know, the rest, as I say, is history. So fast forward a couple of uh, several years, and I'm back on the, the corporate staff and sitting in my little cubicle. And uh, Frank comes and sticks his head around the corner and says, uh, hey, Ned, I'd like you to find me another Red Hat. <laughs> And I said, well, okay. Um, so looked at a lot of stuff and uh, kept coming back to, you know, obviously uh, you think about the technology stack and there's your operating system. And most people would say the database is sort of the next step up and um, just kept coming back to this Postgres database. Um, really seemed to have a lot of potential. Wasn't super well known at the time. I'd actually used it in a couple of, my little company is uh, inside of Landmark. There was a vacation rental properties uh, business that we built from scratch that used it. Um, one of the other publishing businesses. So, um, so anyway, we we put together. I wrote, wrote a business plan for this company called Greatbridge, and um, we actually brought the core team, the core Postgres team, together in person for the first time. These guys never met each other in, in person, so it was Bruce, Tom, Jan. Mark, um, Thomas, and Vadim, the, the original six, 
uh, got together for a, long, a weekend in San Francisco, and it was really cool. And, and three of the six of them uh, ended up uh, joining this startup that we, uh, that we created. And um, it, was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, it, it had a lot of potential. I think in, by any stretch, any, any definition, it was pretty early for, um, for that kind of business. But at the end of the day, I think there was a lot of internal disagreement, shall we say, um, uh, about you know, just the fundamentals of the business model. I know you've, you had some experience with them uh, back in the day. And they ended up uh, just closing the doors after less than a year. Yeah, the, uh, they actually created Command Prompt as it is today. Um, story is, is that Command Prompt was just a small shop doing web development, Linux administration, those types of things. And at the time, I was actually, uh, I made most of my money doing Citrix uh, terminal server consulting. Um, but we were doing a lot of PostgreSQL. Uh, it's just the database that landed in our lap. We, it wasn't any particular choice at the time. And, but we needed someone just in case, right? Because we were, business was growing. We had customers that were relying on for critical infrastructure, which frankly at that time was probably a bad choice. <laughs> um, but we wanted to be able to call someone and say, hey, we just got something weird happen. Can you help us? And Great Bridge quoted us $15,000 for a year just for the possibility that we might call them. Now, if you're Oracle, that might make sense. If you're a company with zero market share using a software that is unknown by anybody but the geekiest of geeks, uh, that it's kind of a bad business plan. Um, and which is kind of interesting because you know, as you know, or uh, you know, Command Prompt is that actually the last living original Postgres company. Everybody else um, has either been swallowed or has gone away. And we've actually survived through all of it. Um, it, it was an interesting time. Uh, I mean, I think you would agree. I mean, that was back when you couldn't run PostgreSQL 24-7. You just <laughs> couldn't. It was too limited. Um, and it had weird things like, you know, we still have the vacuum issue, of course. But back then, it was a blocking. You know, there was no oh, yeah. easy vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all backups, you know, were logical. I mean, shoot, it wasn't even until relatively recently that we could correctly back up PostgreSQL uh, in terms of like roles and permissions and things like that. <laughs> uh, it, it's definitely been a ride. Um, now with Xtuple, you guys are doing ERP. And I remember actually having a conversation with you. This was probably Linux World or OzCon, but circa like, 02 early 2000 yeah yeah real early um because command prompt was trying to create uh something that you know we tried to hold on to and just never got out the door which was called clean contact which was similar to what you do except that it was more generalized that we were trying to create quickbooks for you know open source quickbooks based on postgresql which is not really erp um so tell us a little bit about xtuple and you know why you chose PostgreSQL? I mean, because there were other databases, uh, and you know what? What without getting salesy, what, what do you think the value proposition is there? Yeah, well, it it, it definitely grew out of the Great Bridge experience, and and you know, without getting too far in the weeds, the the fundamental kind of disagreement the parties we all had internally was 
whether we were going to be more of a product company or, or a service company. Um, you know, and, and if it was going to be a service company, was there anything more than trying to sell those $15,000 contracts? And, and, you know, so you could have half an hour of Tom Lane's time, you know, that, that, that didn't strike me as particularly scalable. Um, but I, I did find all these people that had started building applications on top of Postgres, um, in some cases, pretty mission critical applications, and actually, uh, uh, including a couple of ERP systems um, that were out there. And there was one in particular uh, that the guy who uh, wrote it was super smart. Uh, he called it Open MFG at the time. It was um, I remember that yeah, focused on manufacturing companies, uh, you know, obviously, and um, it was. Um, but, you know, and, and ERP sort of definitionally is almost baked into the definition is one database, right? So it's, it is, I mean, it is the, the accounting stuff you were talking about, but also, you know, sales and CRM and purchasing and inventory management and, you know, and shipping and receiving. And if you're, if you're a manufacturer, then all the manufacturing activity and the scheduling and the planning, lots and lots and lots of pieces, parts, and, um, you know, and it's it's a category that has been around for a while. It's it's pretty top heavy. So you've got your SAPs and your Oracles of the world that uh, that have sort of dominated the, that space. But and it's but it's been, you know, and, and so pretty well understood in the global one thousand size companies. But you know, for the small to medium size businesses that are the overwhelming. Um, you know, you know, lion's share of, of businesses, you know, not just in, in the U.S., but around the world, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a lot. ERP as, you know, as existed in the early 2000s was just a big, hairy, expensive mess, complicated and, and, and just, you know, the idea of building and bringing to market a, uh, an ERP that sat on top of Postgres and was built with some other open source tools. Uh, right off the top, you took a lot of uh, a lot of cost out of the equation, right? Because you weren't didn't also have to buy you know an Oracle database. And back then, there were all these other uh, embedded tools that you were paying for with with these kind of applications. And so along the way, you know, we, we would have people, but we didn't uh, necessarily think of of being open source ourselves right at the outset. But we did like the idea of all of, all of our customers and all of our uh, partners having the source code and being able to, you know, contribute to and enhance the product. And over time, uh, we just, we look more and more at the, the virtues of, of having a truly free and open source kind of starter edition um, that really probably got at some of the same, you know, kind of ideas that, that, that you had with, um, you know, with the accounting program at, uh, at Command Prompt. And um, and that was you know that was really when the the company actually started to take off when we released that was uh, postbooks correct postbooks uh, we released as open source in um, uh, let's see I want to say ninety seven no is that right no it's gonna be no no no, it's no two no two thousand seven sorry <laughs> it's like we're getting old uh, we went back in time the hot tub time machine and uh and launch some software yeah <laughs> so you know um one of the things that i i find in the community and in the economy uh now is that 
and, and I think this is probably true of any generation is that you kind of forget or don't learn the history of something. Huh, yeah. And because since you don't Santana, learn the history, right. what was that? The George Santayana uh, yeah. quote. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I never really thought about it myself because I'm always someone who is trying to take, you know, as an entrepreneur, just like yourself, smart entrepreneurs look at past mistakes, especially their own, but definitely others uh, to learn from them, to not repeat them so that you can be successful. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is that from the get go, now you're not open source anymore. As, as far as I know. Yeah, we, so from 2007 uh, for, for, I guess until about 2018, 2019, um, we maintained that, that, that totally free and open source postbooks starter edition. Um, uh, but yeah, just a couple of years ago, we, we, we pulled back on that. Um, and it was interesting. It, it, it was, um, we it was a it was a fantastic way for us to uh, to get in front of a lot of people get get some other hands on the oars to help us develop the product obviously and help people solve their own problems which is you know kind of always been my 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 north star I guess um, but it, it as the years went by and some of the the sort of sort of central you know distribution points of, of, of open source, like SourceForge kind of came and went. And that used to be a, a huge, huge um, source of leads for us of, you know, of, of customers that would, that would, you know, download the free version and then would want to upgrade to, you know, to a, to a commercial edition that had more features, you know, sort of the, um, you know, that uh, uh, business model, right? Sorry? It was your loss leader. Yeah, well, it didn't, it didn't really cost us anything, right? But um, what we found in recent years is that it open source by itself didn't seem to be that much of a reason for people to acquire this kind of software, that it, it was almost as if open source won the battle without any shots being fired. And they, they, and they sort of said, well, of course, we're going to have source code, you know, because that's the way all this internet infrastructure is built now. Talk to me about about the product and the business value and what it's going to do for me, you know? And so that, that's why we kind of, kind of made that shift over the past couple of years. Well, it's actually interesting to me. And one of the reasons I brought it up, I'm sure you're aware of, uh, what is it? The Elasticsearch, um, MongoDB, TimescaleDB, where they all started open source. And then suddenly they realized what open source meant and are no longer open source. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is that there was this uproar over someone like an Amazon creating these hosted versions of the software um, and making money and giving back or not giving back. It always, you know, it, that's not really the argument because open source doesn't require that you give back. Um, but I'm kind of license, right? Say that again? Uh, particularly a Berkeley license. Yeah, particularly a Berkeley license. But, but even GPL, right? You don't have to give back unless you change it. Right. Right. So the, the, you know, you could install it on a server and put a web portal in front of it. And you have, in theory, a viable business plan that gives you monthly subscriptions. The problem is, is obviously then you're, you're in theory taking money from Elasticsearch. 
And, you know, one of the things that I found interesting about this uproar was you, you had, these are entrepreneurs that had a good idea that got back, had funding and decided open source was the hot new trend without, edu without ed actually educating themselves on what that meant and what the risks were. And it's not like the information isn't out there. I mean, you can look at PostgreSQL, you can look at Linux, you can look at Apache or Ingix or any of these other open source projects, the entire GNU foundation for that matter, um, and see that all the money that you make there is in value add around it and everybody is sharing. Uh, so I, just, I found that kind of interesting that, it, that you didn't take that route, but there was a similar result, right? You said, okay, the value that we're getting from open source is no longer there. So we're going to go ahead and close source this and continue to provide a good product and a good service and provide for our employees and their families and help our clients grow. We're not taking our ball and going home. We are just modifying our strategy to be more effective. And I, I'm, I'm particularly impressed with that because of how long you've been around. Um, you had the open source bones and education and history behind you and your corporation that these types of changes weren't unexpected. Like the fact that you can still get postbooks. It's in app repositories, just the, the last version you released that was open source, right? Yeah, it's just, you know, four years ago now. Yeah, it's just four years ago, but you can still get it. And, but there's no... I guess hard feelings, right? There's no, you know, the big gorilla took my took my banana. No, well, banana. I think I think part of that's because you know we started off with something that was 100% RIP, and we threw it over the fence to begin with, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's not like there was this this you know project out there that you know a bunch of volunteers had started, and we kind of swooped in and you know, the big evil corporate, you know, stole it and, and forked it and went another direction. That, that actually happened to a couple of other, you know, would-be competitors of ours back in the day in, in the open source ERP world. And they well, also- it happened with Postgres too, right? I mean, if, if you were, do you remember Illustra? Oh, yeah. So for those that don't know, Illustra was based off, I think it was actually Postgres 95. Um, and it was a closed source version of Postgres. Um, and IBM bought Illustra and turned it into what you now know as uh, the current versions of Informix. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was Informix and then I then IBM. It was, but it was it was that was when Stonebreaker was using it as a teaching tool at Berkeley. That, no, you're right. It wasn't Postgres ninety five. It was the original Postgres. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and then there's Netezza, yep. Teradata. You know, there, there's any number of very large organizations that take open source and never contribute back. I mean, you know, HP was using PostgreSQL for some of their backs, backup software for a long time. Apple used to just ship it. And no one ever complained back then. So um, I guess that whole uproar with the open source, the, the new generation of open source, which is now, you know, I don't know what they're calling it, shared source or something like that, uh, is they don't quite get how it works. And I've, I've, it's been a surprise to me, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, and I, I should be clear, I mean, among, we're, we're kind of back to where we started too, in that all of our, all of our customers, all of our partners still get the full source code. You know, right. to, um, so it's not like it's all buttoned up and, you know, don't look behind the curtain. But um, 
because all of the all of the benefits of you know the community of power users and 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 uh, you know people that that have uh, in our case a lot of the, one of the ways we built the application over the years was through different people and different types of manufacturing and distribution and, and other industrial type of businesses, you know, a lot of gearheads in that world um, that, um, that, uh, that, you know, appreciated the technology, but were also pretty deeply rooted in the blocking and tackling of what was going on on the factory floor, you know? And so we would have, as we were building out new functionality, we would have people chime in and say, you know, well, you know, it was really, it was really cool the way, you know, the Bond ERP product did this, but I hate the way Oracle does this, you know, and so we would have, and we still have this today in our, you know, admittedly within a more of a, a, a closed community, I guess, but that collective brain power of, you know, power users, you know, who, are, who have a broad familiarity with lots of different systems and lots of different types of, of, uh, of businesses, um, that's a that's a skill set that we developed thanks to open source. Taking all those all those requirements, all the all that feedback, and and trying to sort of generalize how we build out the functionality rather than go like super super narrow and say we're building you know a very narrow business case for people in this one industry that have all these crazy rules. You know, it's interesting. You said something there. That's um, you said closed community. Um, and you know, I, I, there's a price of admission to any community and the, the price changes depending on what you're doing. I mean, like what we, you know, with there's the PostgreSQL community, which is largely what I would argue is the gearheads that you were mentioning that are hacking on PostgreSQL. And then there's the professional PostgreSQL community, you know, which is, you know, people Postgres data. And those are the people that are using PostgreSQL to solve problems. And the price of admission is different, right? Um, it might be ideological, it might be talent. And in your case, I would already, I, I might guess is it would be a particular expertise as well as likely a client that creates your community. Um, so with that, it, it seems to me that one of the things that you may be doing right uh, is you're taking that feedback from the people that not only are using the product, because you know anybody can take feedback from using a product, but it's the knowledge of what the product is supposed to be doing for you that makes it so powerful. Right? Is is that what you would say? Yeah, I think so. And you know, I mean, ERP is a it's a it is in in a lot of ways it is it is among the most complex and just crazy busy type of uh, business applications out there. It couldn't be more mission critical, right? Because it's literally running the whole company. Um, and uh, what happens with smaller companies, you know, smaller companies getting started, they, they'll typically start off with some sort of basic accounting, like a QuickBooks or what have you. And, um, you know, maybe the sales guys have their own CRM, you know, that they're off, you know, doing, doing their, you know, they've got a Salesforce or, or HubSpot or what have you. Um, they, uh, the CFO's got a million different spreadsheets, you know, that he's always updating and no one else has any visibility into those spreadsheets, you know, and then the boss's nephew wrote some 
little inventory management thing that, you know, is always breaking. And, you know, before long, you've got this company that's sort of growing up despite itself. And it's got, you know, three, four, five, six different uh, business systems completely disconnected from each other. And they get to a point, you know, particularly when they're like manufacturers or distributors that have these hard goods with costs associated with, you know, making and storing and inventorying and shipping those goods. And they get to a point where they're like, I don't even know how much it costs me to make this. I don't know what I can promise my customers anymore because all our systems are completely, you know, a mess. And so that, I mean, that's the problem that ERP was designed to solve. And, um, and, you know, like I said, it, it was, uh, uh, it, it's a, for big, huge, complex, multi-zillion dollar systems like, like SAP, um, you know, if you're a Globe 1000 company that wants to spend a couple of years implementing SAP, you know, that's one path. But what we've been trying to do, um, you know, initially through the, through the open source approach and now through this, what I would call more of a sort of industry focused expertise approach, um, you know, is to, is to bring that big boy ERP functionality down to smaller companies. So I, I got to ask, how many zeros are in a zillion? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. With SAP, that is the correct answer. Yes. <laughs> Um, now, there's an interesting uh, lead off here. So Xtuple only supports PostgreSQL as a database backend, correct? Correct. So there was, a, I think, a forethought there that, one, because PostgreSQL was open source and growing, uh, obviously, at a, there was a time when that, or you still could if you wanted, uh, contribute directly back to um, through their process to uh, get features in that would be helpful to Xtuple. Yep. Um, but there, the thing about PostgreSQL now, and, and this is something a lot of people don't realize, is that it's very much the Linux of databases. Post yeah, that analogy all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it really is. I mean, you cannot buy something from Amazon without using PostgreSQL, period. Right? I mean, it, it's, it's happening um, as an example. Uh, and I think that uh, when you realize that, you know, the big bad telecommunications companies are using PostgreSQL. And so are just the little guy that has, you know, a shopping cart or a blog that they're trying to promote. But what's most important about PostgreSQL being the Linux of databases is that it literally can do anything. Sure, you can download PostgreSQL version 14.1 or 14. I think we're on 14.2 now uh, from, you know, from postgresql.org and you can install it and you can run it or you can hit a button and run, you know, 13 on RDS Aurora, uh, not Aurora, but on RDS Postgres Amazon or in Google um, or you can hire someone like a command prompt to install it and maintain it. But the, the more important part of this is that there are legendary pieces of software that are PostgreSQL that you don't realize. Yep. Um, like Greenplum, which, I mean, they're installed in, I don't know of any, for, I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of any Fortune 500 that doesn't have at least an install of, of Greenplum. Um, 
And what we, you know, we mentioned earlier, Neteza, Teradata, even though they're kind of in their swan song. Um, and it can also be the central source of your data. You know, if you're looking to deploy something like an ERP system, such as Xtuple, and you're back to PostgreSQL, such as Xtuple, any other data source you have, you can connect to PostgreSQL through any number of means, right? Yeah. You can have CDs, you know, change data capture from Kafka running from your legacy Oracle into your new, uh, and then transform it within the Kafka and then ship it right into PostgreSQL and you never know the difference, right? Yeah. And you can get off of those legacy platforms like SAP and actually move forward with your business with, you know, a company that's actually client centric using technology that is user centric. And that would be Postgres. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to me that we're becoming so maybe homogenized in certain data stacks. Is, is, do you think that's the right term in terms of like these core technologies that, you know, they're the default now, right? P people don't realize that 85% of the world is running Linux because 85% of the world is running Android, which is just a Linux distribution. Yep. No, absolutely. And it, it, the, the analogy I've used, so remember the old, um, the, the palm olive, like green uh, dishwasher liquid? Or, yeah, you know, made so, your hands soft. Right. Yeah. So and the, the old 70s commercials where the, the, the lady in the diner was like sitting there and she had her hand literally like sitting in a, in a little tub of the, of the palm olive. That's right. Marge, the, the lady in the diner, she goes, she goes, you're soaking in it, you know, and that's, that's, that's uh, yeah. So we're all soaking in, in, in Linux and Postgres and other open source technologies without even, you know, necessarily realizing it. What would be the technology that that's not Linux and not Postgres that we wouldn't necessarily recognize that we're soaking in? Huh. Uh, well, probably uh, um, Siri or or some of the uh, some of the the speakers that are listening to everything we say. Well, definitely, yeah. I mean, the Android ones, which I try to turn off, but somehow they always turn on. Right. Um, you don't want to get me started on that. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, there's, we, um, at PostgreSQL a couple of years ago, we had uh, Red Monk come. I, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but he was doing the keynote about, uh, about what the future is. And, you know, his argument was the, the future is about simplicity, right? Yeah. You're going to gain more users, more clients, uh, the simpler your product is. And I agree with that. I mean, obviously, the easier a product is to use, you're lowering the barrier of entry. Um, but there's two problems with that. Problem number one is you lower the barrier of entry, which means you get a lot more stupid users. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, that may be a harsh thing to say, but the reality is there are certain people that should not, that can't even operate, a, you know, a, a Blu-ray player right? Uh, whether they get frustrated or not willing to read the instructions, or they're just not able to process the way the Blue Wave player works. Um, you know, I'm one of those people that could never figure out how to program a VCR, no matter how hard I try, you know. Um, but the blinking flip side, at you. what was that? It was always blinking 12 o'clock at you. No, no matter what, I could set the time the next morning, it was still 12 o'clock. I, I don't know why. Um, 
and largely it's because I was just too impatient to figure it out. And, and the, the lowering of the barrier of entry there obviously would make that better for me. But the flip side is then you also lower your ceiling. I think that there's this mythology that you can lower the simplicity, you know, lower your barrier of entry and increase your ceiling of features. Well, you, you can't. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, we may make a wager here, JD, because okay. that, that, that is in a way kind of the, the, great, uh, the great enterprise that Xtuple is sort of setting off on now. Um, because we, you know, we've got this, we've got this system, this ERP system that's this big, hairy, complex thing that does hundreds of, you know, within an ERP, you've got literally hundreds of different, you know, transactions, document types, you know, uh, things you do, um, and uh, and and they're all, you know, deeply interconnected, and and that complexity is a and is a big part of why companies, you know, only companies of a certain size and, um, um, and, and sort of bandwidth in terms of people, it doesn't, it's not even necessarily dollars, but it's, but it's, but it's, it's just their ability to engage in a, in a project like this. Um, that creates sort of a, a floor to the market for, for ERP systems. And so what we're, what we're engaged in now is, is actually putting that, Putting that to the test, you know, taking that that simplicity challenge from the from the speaker at the at the conference, and saying, you know, what if we took this big hairy ERP and chopped it up into its modular pieces, you know, and said, because um, you know, over the years, I mean, we've had lots of people say to us, um, you know, we you know we really like your you know your inventory management stuff or your manufacturing shop floor stuff, but you know my controller, you know, wants to keep running QuickBooks and would that be a problem? And, you know, instead of listening to people and, 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 and trying to, you know, uh, uh, hear what the market's telling us, we sort of crossed our arms and gave them a lecture on the value of a fully integrated ERP system. Like a true PostgreSQL community member. Right. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, and, um, but, you know, so, and, and so, you know, there, there is, to, in, in most to most ERP people, there is this real, very real floor of you know size and complexity of business that can even engage with this kind of software. And, it, and depending on who you talk to, it might be a you know ten million dollar company, it might be a five million dollar company, it might be a twenty million dollar company. But you know, and we've gone into you know fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar companies that are still trying to run the whole business on QuickBooks and spreadsheets. So it's it doesn't always directly translate to you know sort of revenue size. But what we're, what we're setting about now is, you know, we've built out what's really, I, I guess I'd say our, and this is the advertising portion of the programs, but <laughs> we really our fourth generation API now um, that takes all these different pieces of the ERP system, you know, serves them up as a web service and, and says, you can just do that one thing. You know, we're just, if you're a sales rep out in the field, you know, you can just do these couple pieces of CRM and generate a quote for a customer. And if the rest of the company has, you know, all the other stuff turned on back home, then you can also connect into the back end and say, and by the way, here's all the, uh, you know, 
here, here's the inventory that we've got available of this particular product and here's how long it would take us to make more for you and you know that kind of value add but so we're we're engaged in a um let's say we're about a, a quarter to a third of the way through this process now of going through the full erp and really chopping it up into what you know to use a word that's probably a little old now um chopping them into, into microservices love it microservices you mean modular software components with their own individualized apis exactly the reason i bring that up which you know why i bring this up microservices aren't new people it's just what <laughs> some marketing people came up with to make it sound new um it's like the cloud right everybody has to be on the cloud everybody's been on the cloud since like 96. yeah remember application service providers yes application service providers um so you know, good businesses, they, they always evolve, right? You can see a business that doesn't evolve, uh, isn't innovating, uh, and it doesn't mean they'll go away, right? I mean, a perfect example of this is something like IBM. They've been around for so long, they've gotten so big, that instead of innovating, they just acquire, yep. right? They're, they're not creating anything, they're buying. And, and, you know, for a long time, Microsoft was like this. Um, you know, they, they didn't create Excel, they bought it. Right. And then they ran with it. I mean, in our um, ERP world, they didn't create uh, um, dynamics. They bought a company called Great Plains and a company called Navision. I, I actually uh, did development with Navision once upon a time in a former life. And I remember that as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that to some degree, it, that's a problem with our society now, right? Is that we've gotten to a point where we have companies that are so big and hey, I lean libertarian, more power to you. If you can make a billion dollars, go for it. I, I mean, seriously, I'm not going to ask to take money from your pocket that you earned, but we have these companies that are so large that they no longer have to innovate. And to me, I know this is kind of a sidestep, but it, it, to me, that is one of the crucial points of uh, you know, how do we continue forward if all we're doing is taking all the, when the goal is no longer to innovate and provide, it is to MVP and be acquired. Yeah. What do you think of that thought process? Well, I mean, it's, you know, to, to bring us all the way back to my, my political world from the beginning of my career. I mean, that's, that's antitrust policy, and you know, and that's a lot of the conversations they're having in D.C. about the, the social media companies now, and uh, you know, and and you know, wh whether they're publishers or, or, um, or platforms, you know, and uh, it's I mean, it's fast. I prefer the term scavengers. <laughs> but you know, the the whole the whole question of, um, you know, do does does Facebook have this amazing stranglehold market power over us? I'm inclined to say no. You know, I mean, remember, remember MySpace, remember AOL, remember, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, somebody can, the, the key question is always, have, has, have they built, you know, these, these unsurmountable, insurmountable uh, barriers to the people that come along with a better mousetrap? And I'm not convinced that I think in technology, that's, that's really hard to do. So it's interesting. Are the, 
an insurmountable uh, you know, problem. Uh, we just did a, a podcast with the EFF and an interesting point came up there. And this is actually, I, I have uh, teenage daughters um, and uh, this is my number one, hands down, most difficult parenting conundrum is how do I protect and parent teenage daughters against a world trying to manipulate to, um, what's the term? Um, I can't remember the term, uh, uh, but basically turn them toward a certain brand or person right. or, or, you know, trafficker, those types of things when you have these platforms like Instagram. Um, and it's a very, it's not, when you talk to a lot of younger folks, especially ones that do not have teenage children, uh, they're like, well, you just parent, you just take the phone away or whatever. Well, that's part of the solution. But then what you've done in modern society is that you have taken away the ability for them to talk to their friends. And friends are a key component. And, and worse- They call it I social, mean, right? Yeah, it's all social. Um, and it's a key component to being able to survive in society is to be able to survive with people. And now in the Facebooks, now with teenagers, it might be a TikTok, maybe a Snapchat, um, and say an Instagram. Instagram nowadays tend, it at least seems to be a little bit older. But then you have grandparents. And all the grandparents are on Facebook. <laughs> so... And kids today, in general, you say, text me, and they're like, what? Call me. I can't do that. That'll invoke my social anxiety, right? But I'll, I'll direct message you. Right. Or you take that away. So you're right. On a, on, is, a, on, a, on a platform that was built to support 130 characters. It ex well, you ex Twitter, perfect yeah. example. Um, you, know, you, you know, I mean, Twitter's a perfect example of, of something that was designed to remove critical thought and discussion. <laughs> and at least with Facebook, you can actually write a story that, you know, sources and hasn't, you know, has enough words to where people have to think about what you're saying. Um, but the real problem here is they're not, it's not that, to me anyway, it's not that they are insurmountable. It's not that someone can't come along with something better and someone may not jump to that okay we've seen that that's why you know facebook bought wechat or is it wechat or is it the other one um I, whatsapp WhatsApp, they bought whatsapp yeah. and they bought instagram you know because they they saw the writing on the wall our platform's getting stale it's why they changed their name to meta which is ridiculous but still um but they have become if you look at the uh density of Google and the density of, I mean, Amazon's a social media company too, don't be fooled. But if you look at the density of Apple, you know, Amazon, uh, Google and Facebook and the amount of information that they control to cut one of those, you are cutting what would literally be, or not literally be a virtual lifeline to your social structural network. So it's not as simple as just taking the phone away or setting time limits. 
or you know balancing privacy right it's not like the old when you and i grew up it was like you know if you wanted to go see a friend you picked up a phone you went and saw a friend or oh my god you got off the damn couch walked down the street and knocked on the door <laughs> can you can you imagine that today i'm gonna go see jimmy i'm just gonna you know i'll go knock on the door that doesn't happen or ride my bike to his house yeah. yeah exactly ride a bike to his house um so it so i would disagree with you that those platforms are not a problem but what i, I would wouldn't say, say they're is, a problem but I, but but not uh you know they're not they're not invulnerable agreed i mean the market shifts as the market shifts and they are a problem of our own creation right I mean, it, 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 going back to your early days in, in politics, politics, the people in power who are representatives, not our leaders, people, <laughs> those people that you don't like are your fault. Yep. That's why I've never been a big fan of term limits, because you, we have elections every two years. You know, you, you're right. And actually, let's talk about we're running short on time, but let's take a time, a moment to talk about term limits. <laughs> uh, for a long time, I was, I had the exact same opinion. You know what? We shouldn't have term limits because they're in power because you put their constituents, put them in power. And then I became relatively well-known to the point where I started talking with a lot of people. The problem is, is that we have become a society it, well, I'll give you a perfect example. The last election, I'm not going to ask you who you voted for. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but Trump, Biden, and, and uh, Jorgensen, okay? Those were the three primary uh, opportunities. You had your, your Republican in name, your Democrat authoritarian in name, and your Libertarian, who was a PhD, is a PhD and would have been the first woman president. People were either A, going to vote for Trump because he's a Republican, not because he was the best choice. They were going to vote for Biden because they, he was a Democrat, not because he's the best was the best choice. Or they're going to vote for Jorgensen in any number of reasons why you would vote for Jorgensen. I voted for Jorgensen because I thought she was the best choice. That's the problem with not having term limits. If you don't have term limits, it just shifts based on the nature of general feeling. I mean, this is why we have like the Democrats are fretting right now because the midterms are going to come up and they think they might lose their majority in the Senate, right? Or they're not, not literal majority. They're 50-50 in the Senate. And, but that's what happens every time. And that argument, that behavior there argues against term limits because this, the system kind of corrects itself. But then you end up in a situation where you have uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who, I mean, she's been in office as long as I've been alive. Yep. I'm not saying she's a good or bad politician. That's, I don't, I didn't vote for her. She's not in my district. Um, but she's been a politician as long as I've been alive. To me, that is an argument for term limits because since everybody likes the term now, follow the science. So let's follow the science. When does your mental acuity start to drop? <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother, whole nother set of questions. 
Well, I mean, it's true that now there is something to be said for wisdom. Absolutely. Wisdom is not intelligence and wisdom is not necessarily mental acuity. So I don't think that we should say, okay, you know, 65 is the cutoff. All right. Necessarily. But I think that there's a real argument that our president shouldn't be 80 years old. I, yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. I'll tell you the thing, kind of closing the loop on the term limits thing. The, the, the other thing that I, that informs me on that is having lived and worked there and uh, known a lot of people who lived and worked there. Um, the staff is always there and you can't term limit them. So, you know, with, with more, if you had term limits on the blow dried kind of pop-up people, that would, that would, I think in a lot of ways, just make it worse because they'd be interchangeable, but it'd still be the same people behind the scenes doing what they're doing. That's true. I mean, the power players are the power players. Um, and I think that a lot of people would be surprised that all these laws that are being sponsored, you know, a lot of the representatives don't read them. No, nobody reads them. Right. The, I mean, even the Supreme Court, right? A lot of the opinions that are written, they're written by clerks yep. through deep research. Um, but I will say, you know, I've always had this... It, uh, I've always wanted to do this segment, like if JD was president, right? It's been five minutes. Um, and for term limits, this is the way that I think about it. You can spend your life in politics, but you can only serve two terms in each place. So you can be in Congress for 12 years. You can be in, in the Senate for, I forget how long their terms are for, I think it's six. four years. Yeah. Is it six? Yeah. Okay. So 12 years. And you can be uh, vice president, and then president, right? For, for two terms each, that, that's how it would work, right? If, if you're actually gonna choose the career path that wasn't supposed to be a career, uh, you have to move, you gotta move up or out. And then, then it's Logan's run and you're dead, right? That's right, then it's Logan's run and you're dead. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, that's funny, uh, Justin Timberlake was in a movie uh, called No Time or no time left or something like that and it's a futuristic movie where you basically have a number of credits you know money yeah. uh, that is your life how long you live and you can you can gamble with it to live longer and things like that and that's kind of the, what we're talking about here right is like you can move all the way up the chain but then you're dead yeah. so <laughs> all right well hey ned this i'm glad to catch up with you i mean we haven't talked in probably a decade yeah, no, it's funny. The time uh, uh, it, it does not stand still. It no, it does not. Uh, as my in fact that I need a new ankle will tell you. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it, it's been really good to reconnect. Uh, I love talking about X Tuple. Uh, you know, from, we have a mutual client. Um, before I let you go, is there is there any like outside of the the new I think it's not new product, but new version V4 of your, your product that you're coming out with. Is there any notable use case where you have, say, solved a problem that, that the client didn't think that could be solved that you might want to bring up without exposing any confidential details, of course? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, I think the more we've, we've dug into this area of, of, um, you know, reflecting manufacturing and inventory centric expertise in the software, it, it just sort of, uh, 
it has a ripple effect throughout the, the user community, right? And so we have, for example, we have a lot, just almost by accident, we've, we've ended up having a lot of uh, customers in the uh, sort of specialty food business. You think about all the, the companies, all the product, you, you walk them down the aisles in like a Whole Foods grocery store. And, you know, it's not like everything's coming from Procter and Gamble, or right? it's these small companies, you know, organic stuff. And, and we, you know, it's the husband and wife that want to tell you about, you know, why they got into, you know, making these particular food products and what have you. So, and we, so we've got a lot of those customers and some of them have gotten quite big and quite successful, you know, on, on, on the back of our system. And, you know, like in, so in the food world, for example, you know, you've got, you've always got the, 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 the specter of, of quality and recalls, you know, if there's, God forbid, some kind of, you know, some kind of health uh, concern. So a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, there was an E. coli scare and a good sized customer of ours, um, basically, because we have this very specialized kind of lot tracking and tracing capability in the ERP, um, with the FDA basically sitting on their shoulder, they were able to say, okay, the spinach that we got for you know, these frozen food products that are distributed through all these grocery stores across the country, we can trace back to five or six lots, you know, original lots of the spinach that came into you know, to the, to the company, to the factory. And then we track it out to all the end products, the, the frozen lasagnas and burritos and whatnot that are in grocery freezers all around the country. And we can manage this recall and say, we just need to take these ones back with these, these uh, uh, from, with, you know, from these original lots there that, uh, that have these unique identifiers on them. And you know, this is way before blockchain and um, but it's the same concept and, um, and manage that recall flawlessly. And, you know, and happily, you know, it was, you know, false alarm, there was no, no health emergency, but, um, but they were able to do it um, and came out smelling like a rose with, uh, with the federal government, you know, sitting on their shoulder the whole time. So, I mean, it's that kind of stuff that's really cool to see companies have the, the, the success and the growth, you know, working with us and we can sort of feel, you know, kind of like we've been a, a part of that success. Why, well, you know, I would have to say that, you know, that's a very good way to think about it. When you do business in the vein of, well, for my, you know, for command prompt, you know, our ideology is uh, we're farmers, right? Not hunters. Hmm. So the, the idea is that profit is the reward for the good work. Um, and, you know, th th this is what you're talking about here is a very similar thing where even though you could argue you weren't directly involved, but I would argue you were at the center of it, right? Xtuple was at the center of it, ensuring that helping determine whether or not people were going to get sick. Yeah, absolutely. As well as and protecting your client from the biggest 800 pound gorilla there is. And this is, I mean, this is why I, I was, I was so uh, excited about doing the podcast because you you know, podcast about data and the people who wrangle it, right? I mean, that's at the end of the day, this is, this is, uh, you know, those lot numbers, those ones and zeros, um, you know, we're, that, that's, that's basically data that 
empowered this company that started off, they were 10, $15 million company. They're north of 200 million now, you know, and they've just had this crazy, fantastic growth. And they've been able to do it because they have a system that is sort of data focused. You know, I mean, the name Xtuple, you know, it's even, there's even a, you know, geek joke baked into that, right? It's everything's coming from the tuples. That's right. Right. Um, now to, to regular people, we say, oh no, it's, 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 it means exponential growth. You know, you double, you triple, quintuple, extuple, right? Grow to the power of X. So it's got, you know, two, two names uh, for the price of one. <laughs> All right. With that, this has been More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today was Ned Lilly, president and CEO of Xtuple. Thanks for listening. This podcast is hosted by JD, Command Prompt founder and Postgres conference chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, director of events at Command Prompt Inc. Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.